Welcome to Little Known Crime. I'm Chandra Mel. Trigger warning. This episode contains details that may be difficult for some to hear. This is part two in the lynching series, and I went back to read more on the history of lynchings in America, so that's what I'm going to talk about today. I looked up more information on lynching, and with every page, it becomes more and more clear that this nation has some horrible baggage. There's so much to unpack with the subject of lynching, but unpack we must. It is the responsibility of all of us to fight the inherent racism that this country was built on and stands on to this day. A simple starting point is by learning. Now, by no means can I claim to be an expert or claim to know these bits of information as fact, but I am reading and finding the bits that I share with you to be truth and matching up with what I have learned in my life up to this point. Let's talk about the United States of America and some of its history with lynching. I was speaking with my sister on the phone the other night, and I told her that I have read some information that makes me feel as if I just learned some serious dirt on the U.S. Why? Because this isn't something that is taught, save for quite probably in some specific college courses, but it really puts some things into perspective for me. I want to kick this episode off with that piece of information. The Soviet Union would cover lynching in the U.S. as propaganda, and can you blame them? It makes for a very strong case. In 1946, Paul Robeson urged President Truman to take action against lynching. I don't know Truman's response, but he took no action. In 1951, Robeson worked with the Civil Rights Congress to create a presentation titled We Charge Genocide, where they charged that the U.S. government was guilty of genocide under Article 2 of the United Nations Genocide Convention because the nation failed to work to fight lynching. They were taking the country to the United Nations to be charged with genocide of their own countrymen. They weren't wrong. The very next year, 1952, was the first year in the U.S. that held no recorded lynchings. Think about that. Because the U.S. of A. had been around during World War II, they knew exactly the kind of tolerance given to genocide on a world scale. Let us not be compared in such a light as Hitler and the Nazi party. Let us not be condemned in such a manner and have the UN on our doorstep seeking to hold us accountable for our actions and inaction against our countrymen. This, this really stuck out to me. It's so incredible and I feel like I know the dirty little secret. These fuckers. Decades of inaction has cost so many lives and allowed the South to become the solid South. Southern states actively fought to maintain white supremacy and keep the black population from voting or entering politics. This and using the heavy populations to gain more weight in Congress allowed them the ability to fight and defeat every single attempt at passing laws that combated lynching, among other things. Coming back to the previous topic, you may be wondering, as I did, Who exactly is this Paul Robeson? I've never heard of him. Born in 1898 in New Jersey, Paul was born to a father who had escaped slavery and become a minister, and a mother from a distinguished family. He proved an incredibly intelligent and successful student, becoming valedictorian at Rutgers University, as well as a talented athlete and actor. He had a love of public speaking, 
which did help him to become a very successful actor. He also had a short-lived career as a lawyer at a racially charged firm. He grew to become internationally loved, speaking 15 languages and speaking out for social justice in many countries. Due to being targeted and ostracized for his anti-colonialism and fight for social justice, he has been drowned out and become a little-known figure. His accomplishments have been clouded over by propaganda against him. This is a great American figure whose feats we unfortunately will likely never know. I believe I mentioned in the last episode that lynchings were done heavily for the motive of maintaining white supremacy, but it goes deeper than that. Studies show that there was a rise in lynchings around the time of elections, showing us that they were used to dissuade and affect the black population voting. They were using it to maintain control over the black population on many facets. White supremacy groups, such as the Ku Klux Klan, began cropping up during the Reconstruction Era, 1865 to 1877, to, again, dissuade the black populace from voting, getting educated, or working. This was a huge problem, with paramilitaristic groups such as White League or Red Shirts to terrorize the black communities to keep the Democratic Party in office. This worked in many cases. One example being Yazoo County, Mississippi in 1874. The African-American population was 12,000, yet there were only seven votes cast for Republicans. The next year, Democrats became the power of the state legislature. Now, if you're like me and have lived most of your life actively avoiding politics, not trusting politics, and zoning out when politics were discussed, you may be feeling some of that familiar brain fog or getting distracted with literally anything else right now. But hear me out. Because I fucking hate politics and never wanted to learn a thing about them. Politics are, unfortunate as it can be at times, proving through social injustices to be imperative. If you, like me, want social change, equality among races, sexes, and everything else, you have to learn about the political powers and their agendas. Continuous acts of terrorism led to and allowed the local governments to be filled by people who supported those acts of terrorism and will continue to see that they aren't held accountable for their atrocities. Does that sound familiar? I myself do not trust Demo or Repub and in fact find that politics and power are undeniably and ultimately corruptible. But there are things to look out for, such as fighting against laws that seek to destroy the act of lynching, or allowing people of color and women to vote, or seeking to take rights away from citizens. I know my friend Mandy is listening to this right now with a knowing laugh, because that damned woman tried telling me that I am a feminist when I was 21 years old, and I would not believe her. Then I slowly learned that I am absolutely a feminist. She had done similar nudging with the importance of learning about our country's political atmosphere, and I refused to learn. Yet here I am, conducting an episode about it. Thank you, Mandy. Moving on to the Jim Crow era, lynching saw an overall increase, a dramatic one at that, after the Democrats basically took over the South. Now for a little fun fact, it is stated that fewer than 1% of the lynch mob participants were prosecuted. In fact, participants were hardly ever brought to trial at all. What does that tell you? Literally nothing being done about a mass-scale epidemic sweeping the, mainly, South. Of course, this was after causing hells unimaginable for the indigenous people native to the land and isolating them into tiny plots of land, uprooting them and sending them to parts of the stolen nation that they had never experienced and had to adjust to, including ecosystems, animal life, and weather, not to mention racist piece of shit Europeans who act like they are a fucking godsend trying to make you learn about their god and force violence upon them. 
While there is so much more information to share about the history of lynchings in the U.S. of A., I want to break it up a bit. I'll share one more piece from what I have read before moving on to cover a lynching case. Recall the bit about how the racist white who wanted to maintain white supremacy would mask it by often accusing black men of ravaging white women? Pretty strong bit of propaganda if you want to villainize and dehumanize a population. Picture a damsel in distress with a dress ripped halfway off her shoulder as a beastly man attacks without morale or thought, almost as if he is nothing more than a predator of nature, like a lion or a bear. No civilization in the beast. In 1930, Jesse Daniel Ames formed Association of Southern Women for the Prevention of Lynching and obtained the signatures of 40,000 women to their pledge for a change in the South. Here's a statement from the pledge, and I quote, In light of the facts we dare no longer to allow those bent upon a personal revenge and savagery to commit acts of violence and lawlessness in the name of women. End quote. How fucking awesome. These Southern women were standing up to say, hey, fuck off with your excuses. You cannot use us as pawns to obtain justification for your petty violence. These women saw the bullshit and began to act against it and against lynching. They were even given hostile opposition and physical threats. Who's the beast now? Yet these women continued, just as foundations such as the NAACP did. I first heard of this particular lynching while reading through the extensive article about the history of lynching in the U.S. It stopped me in my tracks, and I reread the section several times. It was a shortened version, of course, because this is an article about many, many pieces of the history. But I couldn't continue reading that night because I needed to sit with this particular murder. Three or four sentences had me in tears, thinking about the last moments of this man's life trying to imagine what his thoughts and feelings were, trying not to imagine the physical pain he suffered, let alone the confusion and pain he must have felt at this attack. I looked it up and got more information on not just the attack, but also on him as a man. There's also an episode of People Magazine Investigates, which is one of my favorite current true crime shows, titled Evil Comes to Jasper which was only just released in July of 2022. By the way, you can find this show on Discovery+. Plus. It has several people surrounding the case and some members of his family, including two of his children. We can all agree how important it is to hear about the individual. Not only does it give us a great picture of who he was as a person, but how real and devastating this unconscionable act was. Let's get to know James Bird Jr. a bit. James Bird Jr. was the third oldest of eight children, firstborn son, born on May 2, 1949. He was raised in Jasper, Texas, and much of his childhood centered around church, as his mother was a Sunday school teacher and his father was a deacon. He enjoyed church. He played piano and sang on Sundays. He is described as funny, thoughtful, intelligent, talented, and always smiling. He played trumpet in the school band and would often have solos during the football games. It was noted that he had people in the crowd cheering him on, a true performer. James was in the last segregated class of Jasper's J.H. Rowe High School before the consolidation of high schools with Jasper High as a part of the Desegregation Act. He married in 1970, having his first child that same year. He would go on to have two more, and his children make mention of how much of a strong family man he was. He wanted the best for them 
and worked very hard to make their lives comfortable. He had many awards and won trips for being the top salesman with his company, which was a fitting career considering how charming a personality he was. His children mentioned the immense respect they have for him. He divorced in 1993, children saying that their parents were still very close but knew that they had to go their separate ways. By June of 1998, James was living alone but was well known and loved throughout Jasper. June 6th, 1998 was a special day for the family. James's niece was having a bridal shower, and family was coming from all over, even states away, to celebrate. After celebrating, James' sister, Lou Vaughn Harris, dropped him off at a friend's for another celebration, which lasted until the early morning. James began walking home and was stopped by a truck with three men in it. Sean Berry, 23 years old, owner of the truck, John King, 23 years old, and Lawrence Brewer, 31 years old, offered him a ride home. Considering this to be a kind act offered due to the late hour, James agreed. The next morning, June 7th, Sheriff Billy Rolls was called to Huff Creek Chapel, a historic African-American church where a body was found across the road by the cemetery. Rawls stated that they could see it was a black man, but his head and shoulder were missing. It was a truly gruesome sight. You could see his ankle bones. Driving to the scene, Rawls initially thought it was a hit-and-run that he could easily follow due to the rubber marks on the road. He figured they'd be able to pull up tire tracks and get the perpetrator, but as he looked on from the body, he realized that these rubber marks were not rubber at all. In fact, it was a trail of blood. Taking a look at the body, the trail of blood, and the church by which it was dumped, one thing became very clear to him. In the People Magazine Investigates episode, he says, quote, the man was killed because he was black. While at the scene, a frantic call comes in from a woman who found the head and shoulder of a person in front of her lawn. It was right along the blood trail and was clearly from the body by the church. Sheriff Rawls followed the blood trail through miles, eventually turning onto a dirt logging road that he said only locals would know about. Along the way, he finds articles of clothing and other items, one of which was a wallet containing the identification of James Byrd Jr. Upon arriving at a clearing at the base of the logging road, it was clear that there was a scuffle from the looks of the ground. Many items were also found lying about, such as a screwdriver with the name Barry carved into it, and a Zippo-style lighter with an unrecognizable symbol and the word possum with the S's looking like lightning bolts. To shorten the investigation side of it, which you are more than welcome to watch the episode about or check out the links I will include for more details, I will just tell you what happened. The three men who picked up James drove him to the clearing at the end of the logging road and attacked him. They beat him, urinated and defecated on him, spray-painted his face with black paint, then used a 25-foot logging chain and chained him by his ankles to the back of the truck. They then dragged him the nearly three miles to the church. Along the way, it is believed he was alive until his body swung and hit a culvert in front of the previously mentioned woman's house, where his head and shoulder were separated from his body. They continued on and dumped his body by the historic black church, with the message to instill fear into the black community. It was found that two of the men were a part of a white supremacist group. All three were sentenced in separate hearings. It was immediately treated as a hate crime by the local police. There was also a bit in the episode that really struck home, and it clearly struck home from everybody for everybody in the court. As a part of at least one of the hearings, there was a point where they 
brought out the 25 foot chain and they were trying to pull it like to show the length of it or talk about it and it was so so loud echoing throughout the courtroom and from that point it was just silence in the courtroom as they said in the episode you could hear a pin drop specifically what's important about this is there was a reality that set in for people in that moment i believe looking at the chain that was a weapon that helped to end this man's life and the severity the horror of the i'm sure many people in that courtroom in that moment were imagining what that was like john king was put to death in 2019 Lawrence Brewer was put to death in 2011, and Sean Barry is in prison for life, being spared the death penalty for cooperating with police. And before anyone tries to say that this may not have had to do with racism, it was admitted by the men that it was racially charged and motivated. They were the ones that stated that they wanted to instill fear in the black community. The lighter with the symbol that was unrecognizable was actually three Ks put together and the two S's that look like lightning bolts in the nickname Possum of the individual that it belonged to were actually supposed to represent the SS in Nazism. That being said, let's not spend any more time speaking about these trash individuals. Weeks after the death of James, the KKK made public announcements that they would be holding a rally in Jasper. In response, the new Black Panthers made public announcements that they too would be holding a rally in Jasper on the very same day. This instilled a lot of fear in the town and outside of it. A race war was highly anticipated. However, James' family spoke publicly asking everyone to choose peace over violence and let James rest in peace. They made it clear that they did not want, and he would not want, for such violence to break out in his name. The day in question came and went. The KKK came and did their rally. The Black Panthers came and had theirs as well. Then they left. No violence broke out that day. James Bird Jr.'s son, Ross Bird, now travels and shares a story spreading peace and knowledge. Watch the episode, please. It shows the strength, courage, and compassion of his family. They are truly incredible people who stand by their truly incredible father, brother, friend. Jasper opened a public park in James' name in 1999 to honor him. And in 2001, the state of Texas passed the James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Act, which strengthens penalties for crimes motivated by race, religion, color, and sexual orientation. It's beautiful, isn't it? It is absolutely beautiful how people can come through such horrifying loss and use that pain to bring about awareness and peace. But let's not forget that this act, this lynching, was only about 25 years ago. It is a current and relevant crime, an act of cruelty fueled by hate and racism. This man had spent his last day surrounded by people he loved, celebrating those he loved, in the town he had known his whole life. He spent his last moments dying what is undoubtedly a most horrific, painful, and emotionally traumatizing death. It hurts so fucking much, thinking about his possible thoughts and feelings as he was experiencing this. I imagine he must have wondered why. Why? James Byrd Jr. was a 49-year-old proud father and grandfather who was loved by his community and his family. He was picked up under the pretense of kindness and murdered in a brutal and horrifying way. 
for no other reason than because he was black. Say his name. Our missing individual from the Washington State Missing Indigenous People is 13-year-old Letitia Bill, who was reported missing on March 28, 2022. If you have any information regarding her whereabouts, please contact the Yakima Tribal Police Department at 509-865-2933. Check out my Instagram, at LittleKnownCrime, where I will be posting photos from today's episode along with links and contact information for the police department. Also, please don't forget to rate, review, and share this podcast with friends and family. This is a small way that we can create a louder voice for the victims and families. Furthermore, I will be adding the link to my Patreon where you can subscribe and earn merch throughout your first year. Check out the different tiers to see what best fits your budget and interests. Also, any support is appreciated. If you would like to tell your story on this podcast, please reach out to me at littleknowncrime at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I'm Chandra Mel, and this is Little Known Crime. <laughs>